You're listening to the Screeners Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Next Trek podcast. Tyler and Kate had the opportunity of sitting down with Daniel Abraham. And if you don't know, he is one half of the pen name James S.A. Corey. He, with his co-author Ty Frank, co-authored the Expanse series of novels and, of course, is working hard right now on season four of the Expanse for Amazon. We are very excited to bring this interview to you today. So without any further ado, let's hop into our interview with Daniel Abraham. All right. So, well, we've got Daniel Abraham here on the show and uh, we're really excited to have him. Daniel, how are you doing? I'm, you know, I'm doing pretty well, all things considered. So for those of us, uh, for those of our listeners who have only seen the show, can you give us some background on the, on the book series? Uh, this is a, a pretty big question, but book series, how it came to be, um, what, how did you come up with it? And then, and then how did it make that long journey to television? Well, the, the, um, the story that we're telling actually originally started out with uh, an entirely different Tyler. Um, there you go. Ty Frank, uh, who is the other half of James S.A. Corey. Right. Um, many, many years ago uh, was putting together a pitch to a, a Chinese internet service provider for who were thinking about maybe getting into uh, building their own MMO. And this was kind of when World of Warcraft uh, ruled the earth. And so Ty's idea was that since they had a, a fantasy uh, MMO that was kind of already established and could not be unseated, uh, to, to reach for a science fiction setting. And instead of having kind of two factions, you'd have three. And, uh, and you can still see that in the, the bones of the story. Sure. Um, and he, he and his friend uh, who had asked him to help out with that uh, took it to uh, the, the ISP, and the ISP uh, got an idea of how much money they were talking about, and everybody kind of avoided eye contact and back <laughs> to the table. Um, and Ty, but Ty, Ty liked the world that he had built. He mm-hmm. thought there was something in there. So he uh, spent a few years doing play-by-post and tabletop role-playing games just to kind of play with the setting and see if there was uh, anything anything there. Um, and coincidentally, he moved to Albuquerque, which is where I live, um, his wife was going to architecture school and we have a pretty good one. That's fairly inexpensive. Uh, and his friend who had, uh, asked him to help build the MMO was in my writer's group. So she introduced us and I lived like five minutes away from him. And, um, he was still running this role-playing game. Uh, but he was running it up in Santa Fe for a bunch of the folks there. And I, I can't, I couldn't yeah. do that. I have a kid, you know, the hour long commute up for a role playing game, maybe <laughs> once to college, but yeah. not right away. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so he agreed to run a version of that here in, in Albuquerque. And um, the, you know, he had the whole solar system built and hold the whole plot built for that. And, um, the version that he did here was doing 
police work on Sirius Station, and I, I made this character named uh, Detective Miller, and yeah. we played. We only played like three or four times. And, oh, wow. so this wasn't uh, like years running or something like that. No, like three or four sessions, really. I mean, it was maybe maybe five. Um, it probably less than that. It, it it was basically long enough for me to realize that he had done all of the world building homework, um, and that you know, I the world building was always the part that's hardest for me as a writer and and to have that done for free uh that was awesome so i i had written and published like five or six books at that point so i i knew how to write a novel and i had done all of the work to build this story and i the thought was um why don't we just put this together as a novel and we can sell it for pizza money and it will be fun um and that we kind of overshot. Uh, that went a little, a little. I was going to say just slightly. Yeah. Um, so when when did it become big? I guess. I mean, I I actually didn't know about it until uh, actually. So Kate and I have been friends for a while. Um, I'm trying to think of when when we both came into it. Was it books two or three? And you came into it a little bit earlier than me. Um, when I came into it right before Cibola Burn was published. Okay. Okay, and I, I knew of it right when it came out, but uh, but I hadn't hadn't gotten into it right away. When when for you did it seem to to just take off more than you really even thought? Well, the first book got nominated for a Hugo Award, so right. that wasn't something we were expecting. Because um, it's it's weird to expect that. That's, that's, yeah. You wouldn't you wouldn't. I mean, to... I expect it, but you know, I just know <laughs> I'm not going to get it. So yeah, um, no, it it actually did really well right out the gate. Um, and part of that was, uh, you know, I think it was the right moment for that kind of story mm-hmm. um, in publishing. I think that they, the hunger for kind of aggressively accessible science fiction um, adventure that, that sort of harked back to the cool stuff we read in the 70s um, without necessarily having all of the uh, cultural mindset of the 70s. Uh, I think that was a, a good a good time for that. And I think we also got some just amazing cover art and graphic design um, that did us a lot of good. Um, And, you know, once the first one did well, then, then people were kind of primed for the second one. And um, by the time we were kind of halfway through the second one, they were uh, the folks at orbit were making it very clear that if there were more after that, that would be lovely too. And, we kind of built our grand scheme for the whole series and what we wanted to do with it and what we wanted to, where we wanted to go with it and how long we thought it would take to get there. And you're uh, shooting for, is it, is it nine books you're shooting for? It's nine novels and a collection of short fiction. Right. Yeah. So right. And 10 total things on your shelf. Um, you're going you're to collect the short fiction. Yeah. No, it, it seems like there's going to be enough to do that once we're done. Um, the reason we haven't done it up till now is we want to make sure there's, you know, enough stories in there to justify it. Right. Um, but I think by the end we'll have like six novellas and two or three short stories. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that, you know, that's, that's enough to justify its own book. That's enough to not make it feel like we're cheating people if they pick it up. No, and ten is a nice round number too. So you know that that seems to be, that seems to be to make sense. Um, 
so so we've we've got this. It's, it has sort of exploded at this point, and and you know it's got those it's got those Game of Thrones comparisons. It's big big long you know long running um, intricate series. Uh, how did it get made into television? How do you how does how do you pivot from just books into into TV? Well, you get ridiculously lucky. That's yeah. uh, that helps a lot. Now we 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 Ty no knew more about the television side of it than I did going in because he was actually uh, working as George's right hand man when uh, HBO started um, making the pilot for Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. um, and it and in fact. Um, George was one of the people who in the role-playing game up in Santa Fe. I thought I had heard that. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I just want to say George was in that group. Melinda Snodgrass was in that group. Walter oh, wow. was in that group. Um, and I'm the one who said, hey, let's write a book. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. I'm bragging, yeah. <laughs> I'm bragging about that. I'm saying oh, they all had their shot, but I was the one that <laughs> um, But, you know, when, when the books started getting some attention, we thought, well, you know, we really ought to, we really ought to, you know, get clear on what's going on with Hollywood agents, and and we got to find a Hollywood agent. So we went out and we we were looking for a Hollywood agent, and then uh, we told our book agent that we were looking for a Hollywood agent. He said, "Oh, but you have one. Um, he's been turning down offers for you for the last six months." And we said, "Oh, oh my gosh. gosh, okay, well, <laughs> glad we didn't hire anybody. That's wow. a." Um, and that's, and he's awesome. Uh, he was a really, really, uh, professional, thoughtful, um, knowledgeable man who shepherded us through the project. Um, and there were, there were a couple of teams of folks who were interested in buying the option on the, uh, property. And one of the teams that was looking at buying the option had, uh, Mark Fergus and Hawk Ostby, who were the the writers of Children of Men and Iron Man, and yeah, that's I mean, yeah, they're, yeah, they're <laughs> yeah, that seems that's okay. Pretty flattering this morning. <laughs> yeah, so um, so they bought the option, and and we hung out with them, and and we all got along real well, and hit it off, and. Um, they were coming in from features. They'd done a lot of stuff right. with feature length movies. They hadn't done any television before. We were coming in from novels. We didn't, we didn't know anything about television at all. Um, and so we asked if we could write one of the scripts and, and be part of the, the adaptation uh, crew. And they, because they had not been in television were unaware that that was a huge and unprecedented thing to ask. And they said, sure. Right. So, um, that's another thing that seems like only George R. R. Martin usually gets away with. Like he, doesn't he write, I think one of the scripts per season or something, but other than that, no, we are, we are way more involved with the expanse than George has ever right. been with rounds. I mean, it's, it's, I, I don't know of anybody. I don't have anybody who has taken the path that we took to get into this. I, so, I, so I what, can't anyone else. So what does it, it what, what's different with you? I, I, which I love. I love that by the way. I think we all, all of us on the, on the podcast, there's, there's three of us. Uh, we love that. We think that's really interesting and your DNA is really clear in there. What, how did you, I mean, other than the accident, I mean, have you been pretty purposeful about that? Well, we went into it um, knowing that we were 
a resource for the folks who actually knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And we went in there looking to learn how to do it. Um, and Ty, um, kind of fortuitously, um, his wife um, got into a graduate program overseas and was out of the country for uh, a few years. And he was at loose ends and had nothing better to do with his time, but you know, learn how to conquer Hollywood. Um, <laughs> so cool. Uh, that was, that was great. Um, no, Ty was on set all of the first season, most of the second season, all the third season. He's going to be on set all the fourth season. Um, so he's, you know, he's been able to be there the whole time. And, and they got a technical showrunner in, somebody who actually had worked a whole lot in television. And it turns out we were not bad at it. So that, that made it uh, possible. Yeah, I, I, I think we also agree. Yeah, not, not bad, not bad. You guys, it seems like you're doing okay. Not at all. <laughs> uh, that's, that's fantastic. And, and yeah, I, I agree with you. I've, I've rarely, you never hear of, of adaptations like this happening. You know, rare enough is it for a movie adaptation to have the author actually write a script that gets in there, let alone a, a long running or longer running TV series. So, well, um, and it, it's a very different skill set. I mean, the one thing I will say is um, I, I understand why having the author come into the writing room is often a terrible idea. Having done it, I mean, it worked out great for us and that's cool and I'm, I'm delighted, but um, going in there, basically relearning how to tell the story in this different uh, venue. It's, it's, it's a tall order. It's a, it's hard stuff to do. Um, and the process of writing a script and the process of writing a book aren't really comparable. They're, they're, they're very different things. What were some of the, the shifts? Like, Cause there were, as, as we've, um, the two of us have read it. We have a, our third co-host has only seen the, um, the, the show, but we've, we've read the books. Um, what were some of those decisions or how did you come up with or come to the decision to make some changes, whether, um, whether monumental or small or, or, you know, merging some characters, how, how were some of those uh, decisions come to, or, or why would you, why would you, I guess, shift from what you originally wrote? Well, the, this, the, the, there are many answers to that, that question. It's a, sure. it's a question with a lot of fairly long answers, but, but here's, here's some of them. Um, part of it is that the tool set of prose fiction is profoundly different from the tool set of uh, filmed entertainment. Um, the things that you can do easily and for free and powerfully in prose don't actually work uh, when you have this different set of constraints on them. Um, so for example, um, we have Miller in the book who is a very internal character. He's got a, he spends a lot of time in his own head. He spends a lot of time cogitating and, and, um, and if you wanted to have an hour of television with Thomas Jane drinking whiskey and looking expensive, <laughs> that's boring. <laughs> so, so you have to find all of the things that were going on in Miller's heart and in his mind and that you were saying through this kind of internal monologue and then put them out where you can see them with a the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, 
and that changes the character. Necessarily that translation changes the character. Um, and there are things that you can do brilliantly in film that you can't do in prose at all. Um, it was the, the, the kind of revelation to me was figuring out that um, all of that work you do in prose to kind of evoke an emotional tone you don't have to do that in the script. They just put a soundtrack under it. <laughs> Free. It's, <Sure. laughs> it's amazing. Um, it, 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 and, and so those kinds of things dictate a bunch of the changes that you, you do. And also, when you're writing a book, part of the point of writing a book, um, any, any, any book you write is going to be in competition with movies with video games with all of the other ways that you can spend your leisure time you need to write a book in a way that gives the reader something that they couldn't get anyplace else right um and so mm -hmm. then to take that and find some way to get it someplace else that's uh it means you gotta you gotta bend some stuff mm -hmm. yeah some yeah. of the really visceral moments of the show um you know, like for instance, um, whenever they're they're shooting uh, at any ship they're on, and you're seeing those holes being punched in the side of the ship into where you know the crew are, that sort of thing. Seeing it is like so much more powerful. You know what? The one that got me was watching uh, Julie Mao in her hotel room in episode nine. Because mm -hmm. I mean, we we I I I think I wrote the scene I, it was a miller chapter so i, I was the first draft of going and and finding julie in that um hotel room and i you know i was pretty florid i i i tried to make it very visceral and 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 uh affecting and then when you see florence on screen i felt i just felt bad i just felt you know like i'd done something terrible <laughs> The actor and the director and the editor and the sound designer. Right. I mean, there are so many people who are bringing their expertise to this that it's mm -hmm. it's uh, yeah, it's amazing what they can pull off. It's just it's amazing storytelling. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, and that's the big difference between writing a, a story and writing a script. When you're writing a story, you're writing something that is the final presentation. It's the last thing that's going to happen before you hand it to the audience. Right. Uh, when you're writing a script, you're writing a blueprint for like 80 different people. <laughs> <laughs> and they have to be able to know what you want them to do and what the vision of the thing is from that document. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's almost, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's a, a reverse of it. One is, yeah. One's the end, one's the beginning. And, and, and you're sort of predicting, I would assume you're sort of predicting and hoping, I guess, with the, with the script, what's going to happen. Do you, how, how much beyond the script, how much say do you guys have? You, you said Ty was on set and, and I, I assume you've been on set uh, a, a bit as well. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. Just not, not, not as much as Ty, but I've, sure. I've, I've been there and I've spent a lot of hours in the writer's room in LA and, um we don't we don't have any um formal power we we're all of the the kind of formal power rests in uh our showrunner narang he's he's right. the 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 last word on all of this stuff um but we have a strong lobbying position <laughs> sure but, uh and and narang is great narang is really very good about um 
listening to people and having conversations and being disagreed with and letting the best idea win. He's been very good at building uh, a, a, a very low ego kind of writer's room. Which I hear is rare enough in Hollywood, especially the best idea win situation is, is quite often it's the showrunner and it is his vision or her vision and, and you guys are just there to, to execute it. Yeah, it's been very collaborative. It's been very Excellent. collaborative from the word go. Um, getting into just the the influences or, or, or the the maybe just getting a, a little bit deeper, where are you guys coming from in terms of um, um, thematic influences uh, or even sci-fi influences? Why? Uh, and I know Ty, you said did a lot of the world building or did the world building, but why why set it where where you did right now as opposed to you know a, a far future Star Trek or um, a, a more um, broad space opera like like star wars or something like that why why set it where you did and uh and in the way that you did well the short answer to that is alfred bester um the 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 dna of the expanse that is the most direct is uh alfred bester's the stars my destination Mm. um the idea of belters the idea of an inhabited uh, solar system, the idea of this this kind of almost blue collar aesthetic that's going on where there are yeah it's space, but you still need to have workers and there's still need, there's still social classes and there's still um, all of the you know there's crime and there's all of the kind of gritty human stuff that we deal with now you deal with there too that's that's uh it's a book that Ty read when he was probably a little too young to be reading it. And it's one that I read and really appreciated and enjoyed. Um, and, and there was a lot of stuff in the, the seventies that I think had that kind of vibe. I mean, I, I think some Larry Niven stories were doing that. There was a lot of stuff with uh, Arthur Clark that was done inside the, the solace and rendezvous with Rama. I'm thinking there. Um, right. And, and one of the things that was interesting for us was looking at science fiction that, you know, it's, it's, we have a lot that's like 20 minutes into the future, kind of almost cyberpunky, right? very close speculation. And we have a lot of grand epic um, galaxy spanning space opera. We don't have a whole lot in the middle. We don't have a whole lot that draws the line between those two. Um, mm. And, and part of the thing that we wanted to do with the series was kind of explore the territory between uh, late Apollo 13 and early Buck Rogers, you know, the, right, right. just talk about how you, how that looks, how you get there. Yeah. This is what uh, originally drew me to the series is I was looking for science fiction that wasn't near future and wasn't far future and I wasn't finding a whole lot. And then I found, um, I think what I think makes was like either free or reduced price on Amazon ebook or something like, well, I'll try this and see what it is. And didn't quite expect to get a favorite series out of it, but that, um, literally that timeline setting was why I went looking for a series like this one. And that was scratching an itch that I, I really needed because it seemed too much of one and the other, but not this middle area. Well, and I think it turns out that there were a lot of people like you on that. I think part of, part of, uh, 
the reason that we were as successful as we were with it was that there weren't a whole lot of other people in exactly that space. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One of the other things I appreciate about the show is its um, depiction of humanity. Uh, the characters are not written in an idealized form. They're not saved by technology. They're not evolved beyond baser instincts, um, but they're also not uh, space grimdark either. I actually recognize the behaviors of people in the world that, you know, we live in here and now as characters on the show and in the books. And I was just curious if, um, um, if this was like a formal decision that you and Ty made up front with the writing of the series, or it's something that evolved as, as you know, a natural outgrowth of your uh, worldview. Well, what we wanted to do going in was have it be fun. Mm. Um, and um and grimdark um is cathartic <laughs> yeah it, um it's it's compelling um it's not fun that's if mm -hmm. it's fun it's not grimdark um mm -hmm. and and we, i think i think ty and i both uh came into it with a, a view of humanity that um, you know we're we're a whole bunch of morons, just all of us. I mean, us too. <laughs> it's not, not, not oh, they're all morons. Like no, we 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 are all everybody. We're just all dumb all the time, um, and that's okay. And and we're lovable anyway. Uh, um, and yeah, that's that's that sense that when we move out into the stars, the, the big problems are going to be the ones we packed with us. Yeah. One of the things also that we, that we did when, when we actually first got in touch with you was, was uh, we were having a conversation actually on Twitter about, um, about that, that worldview with, you know, those problems are what we bring with us versus that, you know, uber uh, utopian um worldview of, of star trek did was that also would you would you think that you're maybe in a reaction to that that worldview of, of star trek of just saying it's all going to be peachy keen um you know when we have all this technology that saves everything or um, I, I think i think star trek is a different project yeah I think, I think the thing that that kind of really far future um utopian uh, exploratory um, world can give you is a great way into allegory and a mm. great way into um, telling stories that are uh, exploring social issues, almost like a philosophy project, right. um, which is, which is an awesome project. I'm not, I, I, I'm not, not saying anything against that. Um, I, I love my, love me some Star Trek. Right. Uh, but that's not the project that we're working on. Um, the project that we're working on is um, much messier than that. And, and to the degree that it's um, looking at uh, any contemporary issues, it's looking at them through the lens of history and the idea that, the the future will rhyme with the past yeah i i i think i really agree with that what what would you say i guess is with that messiness because i i agree that i think that's a, a really good way of describing it is is it, it is messy and and it is very human as well because we bring all this baggage with us um 
what what would you say are the the greater themes that you that you seem to be to be trying to dig into? Even though you're right, Star Trek is allegorical um, and saying doing its own thing. Where are you guys? What are you guys trying to say? I guess I, the thing that I mean, I, I of the two of us, I'm probably the closer to the Pollyanna. I think the the thing that I'm trying to say through it is that. Um, you know, we've bumbled through history up till now, and I, I think we'll continue to bumble through history in the future. And and in the large, there's more to admire in humanity than to despise. Yeah. Um, you know, for without without looking away from our faults, without looking away from the atrocities we commit, without a, looking away from our tribalism and our pettiness and our cruelty, still despite all the evidence I, you know that's the line from the book that despite all the evidence i keep thinking the assholes are outliers mm-hmm. yeah oh i love it uh yeah I, I and speaking of speaking of that and i can't remember if now that i'm thinking of who said that but but uh i remember the line i think i gotta say one in our humble opinion christian alvacerella um is just one of the best characters in, mm-hmm. in both the book series and the television series. Um, and she's got that view, I think. I mean, she's, she is of that view that, that good will win out despite all of uh, everybody else's uh, major faults. Um, where in the world did she come from? Because she is magnetic. Well, um, okay. Another thing with a long answer, but here we go. Uh, yeah, long answer. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, that's cool. Um, one of the, the kind of artistic issues we had with the first book is that it's a very masculine book. We wind up with two um, male viewpoint characters. And even though we, we, um, we were careful in writing the first book to make it clear that women were um, unremarkably in positions of power. So we had like the, the, the captain of the Donager was a right. woman. Uh, Miller's boss was a woman. And it never got commented on. It was just part of the world. Um, because all of our viewpoint characters were male, it wound up feeling um, not as full and not as rich as we would like it to have been. So when we came to start looking at the second book, one of the things we were looking at was um, these kind of archetypical uh, characters um, and, and things that had, had traditional genders associated with them, um, and how to play with that. Mm-hmm. So we had the, uh, the, the tough as nails Marine who, you know, that's traditionally a guy. Uh, we had the, the high power politician that's traditionally a guy. We had, uh, the parents desperately trying to see, find their missing child. That's, that's the mom story. Um, and we just swapped them. She's got such a unique voice and, and not only, you know, uh, is she portrayed so, so interestingly, I mean, she's got the, the mouth of a sailor. She's, she is um, hard drinking, hard swearing. And, and you just don't see that these days. Is there, I, I almost want to, to know, I mean, is, is she based on anybody that's real? I mean, do you know some hard drinking, hard swearing lady or, or is she just, you know, she just this, this awesome character that just happened to blossom? No, she, I mean, I, I if you look at any author's um, kind of body of work, 
it, it's a lot like looking at an acting troupe. You, you can kind of pick out the character, the, the actors who are playing different characters. Yeah. Um, and that particular kind of um, middle-aged to older woman um, who lives a very independent uh, life shows up in my stuff a lot. It's, she's just a character who I enjoy. Gotcha. Um, and this particular instance of, of her really was directly formed by uh, Rahm Emanuel's penchant for uh, profanity. If she's using profanity this way, um, why? Mm-hmm. And for her, the answer is, it's because if she can make them blush, she controls the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I love and, it. And, and that sense of this is a role that she plays that she has played for so long that it's almost impossible not to be that. It's almost impossible to dissociate herself. So, so her husband will call it the mask and mm-hmm. her husband will think that it's not really her and she's not sure anymore. That's, mm-hmm. and that's, that's familiar. That, that seemed right. I had not thought of it that way. And, and she's almost then, uh, she's like a reverse uh, Miss Marple, who, who is the older lady who takes advantage of hiding, hiding in plain sight. Uh, she's, Avasarala is, is hiding, like not hiding in plain sight. She is in plain sight and using this to disarm. I think that's really, wow, interesting. She's, she's, she's using it to put people on their off foot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To, to, yeah. And, and when she doesn't want to do it, she's not. Um, she's a, she's very aware of and very calculating about how she is seen. One of the things I appreciate most is she is a powerful woman. She owns the room. She does all these things, but we see her wonderful vulnerability in moments like when she's in the racing pinnace with Bobby and Bobby's worried about her stroking out and, you know, she gets space sick and like all these things that round her out as a human being. She's, um, um, she is comfortable enough with herself, but also the way she's written. Um, um, she gets to be the full range of, of a person and not just as the representative strong woman has to be strong all the time. And we don't see that uh, human aspect too. One of the things that's really interesting about, um, and, and it actually came out talking about fight scenes. Mm. Um, the thing that makes a really good fight scene is that you know how people feel in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's uh, I, I think Sam Sykes was talking about this on Twitter a couple of days ago. He was talking about uh, you know reading uh, fight scenes that are all about which hold and which technique and which order and not at all about how anybody feels. Um, and I think that actually generalizes out really well to uh, a lot of kind of character building issues and the the issue of having somebody who is strong and also vulnerable and somebody who is who is um contrary wise sort of weak with moments of real strength and moments of clarity in them it, it makes them more interesting mm-hmm. Agreed. and also the women have a lot of the best fight scenes yes <laughs> i mean that's like one of the best things about the show is you have many women and they're they're strong in different ways and they have the cool fight scenes we and and some of that just wound up happening organically. It was not. I mean, there was there was a point in the third book where 
we were just doing the blocking plot wise for what needed to happen. And we realized that we had set it up so that um, we had a critical violent fight scene and everybody involved was a woman and we hadn't really planned that. It's just, that's who they needed to be there. And that was cool. So we did that. It played very well. Well, and it had Anna. I love Anna. I mean, come on. She's so yeah. great. Oh. Yeah. Um, so in a little bit of a, a shift here to talk about uh, Holden. Um, in a previous episode of the podcast, we had a discussion about Holden, uh, um, who he is to the story, aside from the obvious that he's the protagonist. Um, is he a kind of chosen one, or is he a more right time, right place, right person? Well, that kind of depends on whether you think God exists, doesn't it? I mean, if 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 you think that there is somebody to do any choosing, I guess you could make a pretty decent argument that that uh, that. I I think actually uh, the 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 way that Ty and I have always talked about him is as the holy fool. Mm. Uh, oh wow, he's he's um a genuinely good-hearted. Um, flawed person who is uh, like uh, capable of um, tremendous kindness and tremendous a tremendous sense of responsibility for people around him and um, a guilelessness that comes through at like horribly inopportune moments yeah um, and um, I, I think, you know, if, if you had to pick what he is, you know, he's not, he's not chosen. He's, uh, except in that he has, he has chosen to do this. And he is, he is this kind of person in this situation at this time. And I don't know that he could, you know, do anything but what he does. Uh, He's, he's just, he's kind of a nice guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And almost, almost to a fault, you know, he's not, he's not so much of a boy scout completely, but, but every once in a while you're like, ah, oh, Holden, come on. You said guileless even, you know, come on, Holden, you, you, you can make a better political decision than that instead of just, you know, racing in and doing your thing. Um, and it, you kind of love him for it. Well, and he's not, he's not, I mean, and part of what we do through the books and part of what I think you're seeing in the show is his kind of spiraling back yeah. to uh, a more and more sophisticated version of exactly the same guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there's and and there's a reason for that. There are there's there's stuff that we're we're building toward with him, and um, and I think you know you'll you see him in later in the story starting to learn from Avasarala and starting to um, be more savvy um, without ever losing that, that kind of base level idealism that makes everybody else just roll their eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's the character arc we're working with with him. And yeah, I, really, I really appreciated that you gave that the show gave him PTSD essentially uh, for dealing with everything because He's, you know, that lets him be a human being because they go right. through so much 
and not to have an emotional reaction to that and then not to think that he's you know losing his mind as he starts to see Miller um I just on the one hand it can be a little bit risky to take your hero down you know the losing their mind road but on the other hand I think it pays off really well well and I I I also think that Steve uh Steve Estrait is really uh an amazing actor and he we've given him the longest character arc with the uh this this kind of very subtle internal growth and he's done an amazing amount of work actually um understanding what holden is going through and um figuring out you know kind of if he were doing those things why he would be doing them Mm -hmm. um and watching holden go from um, this sort of self-righteous, I'm going to do the right thing because it's the right thing that we saw in the first season to this kind of grimdark version that also just doesn't fit him at all to this guy who's just trying to maybe not have people shoot each other. <laughs> if maybe they could just not do that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult and subtle arc. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really admire the hell out of Steven and how he's been doing it. I, I, I think he has not only done a great job with Holden, I think he's an amazing human being and, and someone I, I think we were really lucky to have be part mm-hmm. of the project. Excellent. He was one that when he was first cast, uh, I had questions, but then I just needed to see him on screen and playing the role. And I was like, I got this. I got what, what um, they were doing. Just choosing Same. him for this role. Same. And, and then picking up the book, you know, I, I had my image of him in my head with the book. Uh, and, and now he's easily the only one, you know, he's the one that I, that I absolutely th- um, think of. I don't, I don't replace him with my, my head version any longer. Um, although Avicerala was, was spot on. She was um, uh, yeah. exactly who I imagined. So that was, that was, that was great. Um, we haven't actually had a chance to mention the, the, uh, any of the other crew of the, the Rossi really, but I just like while we're, while we're mentioning Holden, you know, we, we even have, sort of his his amoral opposite in um oh my gosh my brain just went uh amos thank you wow i was i I, love amos Amos. yeah yeah and and he's just delightful i mean was that that to me has got to be i guess an interesting thing to write amorality well the the joke we have and it's one of those ha ha only serious kind of jokes um is that Amos is Ty's id and Ava Sarala is mine. Oh, <laughs> love wow. it. Oh, I love it. So um, Ty always does the last pass on all of the Amos work, even whether it's on in the books or on the show. He's, he's the guy who actually knows what Amos would say in that situation. Great. Um, and it's, and it was, it was, it was really interesting trying to cast Amos. I'm sure because we had a we had a lot of very talented actors come through and read for that um but they wanted him to be a tough guy yeah and they wanted him to be you know threatening and 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 intimidating like tough guys are and amos is not intimidating he's not he's not gonna try to talk his way out of a fight he's not gonna try to back anybody down from a fight he's gonna be fine right up until it needs to be a fight and he's gonna fight and he's gonna be soft then there's no there's no um posturing yeah um and wes understood that (laughs) yeah um from from the word go wes understood who amos was Mm -hmm. uh and 
has, I think, really done it. Uh, he, he, he's, he's embodied that role and he's become very protective of it in ways that I think have really helped the show. Because mm-hmm. um, a lot of times you have, you give new directors coming in, they don't necessarily understand the characters as deeply uh, as the people who've been living with them. And, sure. and, and Wes, Wes has his brain around what Amos is in a way that I think is, is brilliant. Yeah, he's really powerful to watch on screen because he's he's not just the the violent guy of the crew. Like he makes really interesting connections with Anna, with with Prax. Like right. like there's there's something live going on there. It's not just you know a, a meathead who's there to pound faces. Um, well, and Cortazar, I thought the the relate one of the things that was really fun in the show was we got to have uh, Paolo Cortazar, the the scientist from. Toth Station. Yes, mm-hmm. um, and Amos oh. have that that moment together. We didn't we didn't get to do that in the books. That was right. mm-hmm. the staging was didn't allow that. Um, and having those two together and seeing what that conversation looked like was actually really interesting. Yes. I, I was really glad we got to do that. Yeah, that was that was a, a, a in a, a weird way. It was a touching moment, like of of Amos sort of just realizing a little bit more who he is. And I, I, yeah, I love that. Yeah. I think my favorite, some of my favorite Amos scenes of, of season three uh, were with Prax, like when uh, oh. Prax's oxygen hose comes loose, like that whole scene. Come on. I, from reading the books, I pretty well knew it was going to happen, but I couldn't breathe the whole time I was watching that. It was just incredible. Yeah. Well, and, and Wes is also an amazing physical actor. Mm. Um, the, the way that he... Um, has been able to sell those moments and sell the illusion of those moments in a way that just, uh, I mean, if, if we do it wrong, it looks terrible. If we do it wrong, it's funny. Uh, mm. And it's not funny. He does not do it funny. No. Yeah. My other favorite scene, which I think is a stand-up and cheer scene for our other co-host just after yes. he's talking prax down um, from shooting um, and then pushes him out the door and then does the whole, I am that guy. Oh, yeah, so. you, know, you knew that line was coming, but man, it landed when it got there. <laughs> oh, it did. It was, it was literally a stand-up and cheer moment. <laughs> really, it absolutely, I, I absolutely fist-pumped when I, when I saw that. I was alone in my apartment watching it and said, Yes, I can't believe it. It was the best. Oh. And, and I think that there's something interesting and amazingly sweet about yeah. not wanting to let Prax yeah. um, become violent. Yeah. Not, not, not wanting to have him have to carry with him what happens when you've become that guy. When you... Right. When, you 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 know seeing the the nurturing power that is in prax i mean he prax is there to be the nurturing male that is what he's there to do and to for having to have amos see that and value it and respect it and protect it yeah Um, i i'm really i was i was glad that we did that i'm glad that it came out the way it did I love it. Yeah. And Terry Chen is fantastic as Prax. Oh, yes. Right. I love Terry. And the thing about Terry is uh, he's done a lot of roles as, you know, scary Asian gangster number three. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Such a sweetheart. He's such a genuinely sweet, wonderful man. And just a, a, a delight of a human being that 
I, you know, I, I, I'm so, I, I'm, if, if we don't do anything else with this uh, show, we gave him a moment to be Prax and that was awesome. Do you have any behind the scenes stories from filming of season three that you can share? The thing that was really cool about season three, it was the first season we had ended two books inside the same season. Right. Um, so we had the, the end of, of Caliban's war in it. And we also had the end of Bad and Zane. So we had these two really powerful crescendo endings all in the same, uh, the same run of, of, of episodes. Um, and so we had that reset in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the thing, one of the things that was really interesting and we didn't, I don't think we, I don't think we talked about this uh, much, or, or we did maybe later, but um, Drummer, the, the character of Drummer that, that Kara G plays. If you, if you notice how Kara speaks as Drummer most of the time, it's got this very harsh, almost stilted uh, mm-hmm. cadence to it. When she speaks in pure belter, it's flowing. It's oh, natural. That's a good she's point. Playing, she's playing it as though Belter were her first language. Wow, I had not thought that. In a second language. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And when, and when Naomi goes over to uh, be full-time on, on the, the behemoth, her accent changes. Her, her mm-hmm. that. thickens up. And she's yeah. doing this kind of code switching based on who she's around because she's been around all these interplanet guys and mm-hmm. she's been minimizing that part of her of her accent and then she's around her people and she does that code switching thing where it comes out and that was that was all uh kara and dominique making that decision oh that that's awesome how to do the to do those characters and um i thought that was that was lovely and i thought i think it adds a certain level of um identity to the mm. conversation that, that i'm 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 really glad was in there so yeah, that is brilliant right kara's kind of awesome she yeah kind of came so nicely to the forefront you know she was there in the background season two and then season three she just was was right in front and just captivating yeah. Yeah. And I, I kind of didn't see her coming because uh, I knew from the books that her point of view doesn't really show up until uh, what Nemesis Games, uh, book five. And so it just, she was so powerful in season three. It was incredible. Well, and, 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 and we lost a bunch of the people who, you know, that book, um, that mm-hmm. she was in a position to carry that storyline. So we yeah. didn't have. Michio Pa, who's in the book. We didn't have uh, Carlos well, Baca, who was in the book, um, and we had we had drummer instead. And that that kind of uh, folding in of characters has, I think, worked for us pretty nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that having all of the characters who were in the book show up all the way through the series, I think you just have too many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we got to have David Strathairn. Um, yes. Who, oh man. Did his version of of Clay's Ashford that I think was uh, awesome. I mean, very different from the book. Very different from the book, and and kind of brilliant. Yeah, he made he was such a um, a grayer like you couldn't just hate him. Like you felt conflicted watching him argue 
uh, with Drummer, but in such a civilized way, and their whole scene where they're both, you know, pinned by the equipment, such a powerful oh, man. scene. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, he, oh, go for it. Go ahead. He, 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 uh, he had a point. I mean, he had, yeah. he had a, a point of view and an argument that was hard to dismiss mm-hmm. and, um, and a lifetime of violence behind him that, that uh, David was brilliant at just kind of layering in. And, and there's so much of his story that's in there that's never spoken. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, you hear him talking about watching his child burn to death and mm-hmm. you have all of these scars on his body and you never hear that story. No. Yeah. All you hear, but you know something, you know something terrible happened. Uh, yeah. And, and, he, and the other thing, and almost nobody notices this. Um, if you look at uh, a really close uh, close up of Ashford, like his face, Mm-hmm. Uh, one of his eyes is a different color. Oh, I did not notice that. That's not David. That's a decision David made to have the scar go into his pupil. Oh, wow. So that that's the level of detail that David was bringing to that. Um, and dude, it's David's just there. Holy shit. <laughs> right? Totally. Oh, totally. And, and, as, and as amazing as he is, he is not who, who I would expect to be cast in that role. You know, he's, he's, so, he's often so straight-laced, you know, and to be that guy is just shockingly and, and wonderfully surprising. One of the things I think we've done a very good job with is take um, actors who will make the role interesting just by being them. Yeah. And I think you're going to see some of that in season four. I think I, I'm I'm watching the casting of season four going on right now, um, and I'm I'm seeing some of the folks we're getting for for roles there that I'm I'm really really excited by and really interested to see how uh, those energies and those presences change the the story. Yeah, we were going to ask about where uh, season four was in production. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, we start filming in October. Oh, wow. You guys are right there. Wow. Yeah. So um, Ty went up to uh, Toronto for pre-production last week. Um, and I'm not, I'm not heading up there right away, but we're working on some scripty stuff and they're going to, they're, they're casting folks and uh, I mean, the, 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 the rewriting process for scripts, I, I was very surprised that it goes on for as long as it does. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, you know, we've got, we've got solid scripts for the first few blocks and there will be some more coming up later on. And it's, it's all, it's all coming together. So can I speculate about something that you may or may not be able to confirm? I will, uh, Hint broadly if I can. Go for it. Okay. So, Sable of Burn, book four, takes place in another galaxy. We have nothing of our home galaxy really going on. The trend of the show has been to fill out things uh, where there might not have been anything explicitly in the books. Can we assume that we're going to get home galaxy stuff going on too? I think we've been very good about including um, material not just from the main stories but from some of the ancillary stuff and some of the stuff that kind of gets gestured to so there's there's really a lot we have to pull from great 
Is that good? Was that, was that broad enough? Did I do all right? I think that yes. was yeah. That was that was good and cagey <laughs> enough. That was, it worked. I, I gotta say, I, I'm really excited for season four. Um, it, Siebel of Burn is my favorite of the books um, so far. Um, it's it's the first that I sat and read in one sitting, um, which was it was intense. It was it was Thanksgiving week, and I was just no, I was not being social with my family because I I was cranking through it, and um, I think it's. I'm I'm really excited to see where you're going to go with that. I I can't wait. Um, very ra- random technical thing, and just because I'm curious, uh, is it is it because now it's on Amazon? Is it going to be a full season drop, or are you doing one by one weekly, or or do you know, or is that just way out of not even being talked about yet? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that one yet. I yeah. think that's going to be a conversation that uh, will probably go on between Alcon and Amazon when the time comes. Sure. But and maybe they've had it now. It's not something that I you know. That that's not something where my opinion yeah. is it or useful. So. Sure, sure. If yeah. if you did, hey, if, if your opinion matters here. You know uh, what? Uh, what do you think? Um, uh, what, what's your opinion? Would you would you like? Would you see a benefit of, of there being a full drop? Would that change anything that you guys are doing? It wouldn't change anything that we're doing in the show. No, no. that's that's. Anything that we're going to do, we're going to assume that somebody at some point will be binging. Sure. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it, from a purely kind of mercenary point of view, um, <laughs> dropping one a week keeps it in the conversation right. longer yeah. and sells more books. That right. would be. But. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> but and that's you know beside the point. At that well, at that point, that that's just me being uh, petty, really. It's nothing. Yeah. I, I think I think either way would work fine. Sure. At this point, I'm just so happy that Amazon picked it up, that the fan campaign went so well. Um, oh, um, right. That was weird. That was... That was incredible. Uh, well, and, and the thing that's, that's, that I, I love is all the folks who were, who were uh, kind of conspiracy theorying it, where it's like, oh, we were really always aiming to jump to Amazon and we were, this was all some kind of cunning three-dimensional chip. We, no, we were all, we all assumed we were fired. <laughs> oh, wow. We, we were all, you know, hugging each other and saying how much we hoped we could work with each other down the line. There was a, was a plan to go kind of live tweet the last episode from mm. Alcon and trash the writer's room. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, we were, I mean, we all we all thought it was over. Mm-hmm. Um, we all worked under the assumption it was over, and then suddenly it wasn't. Um, and that was that was that was astounding. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. I, I was glued to Twitter for days as this stuff was going on, and I'm at work trying to get things done, and I can't stop looking at Twitter because things just kept happening. And then Cass Anvar was such a big part of the campaign as well, and to have you know a member of the show be so out there in front was it, it just gave me a lot of hope that it would succeed, and then it did. Yeah, no, I I, I uh, about halfway through the thing, it started being clear that we were getting traction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I went to Kaz and told him that if he pulled this off, he was never buying a drink in my presence again. Right. Uh, so <laughs> I'm on the hook. Yeah. Not alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Um, so uh, when the news came out, like, where were you? How did you find out? Um, 
I, I I don't remember exactly where I was, but I found out because uh, Cass sent me a, a WhatsApp message with the video of Bezos announcing it. Um, oh yeah! Wow. I mean, that was. That was I, mean, I, we, I mean, we knew that there were people talking and there was hopeful, but you know, I mean, that's. It's Hollywood. If they're talking to you at all, it's because things are hopeful, whether it makes any sense or not. It's, that's uh, it's not a predictor of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to have it actually come down like that, that was, I mean, <laughs> it was, that was weird. That was some weird stuff. That was strange. That was incredible. And for Bezos to actually announce it himself while at this conference that was going to happen, you know, regardless of the show, it wasn't like it was planned that way. No. Well, and, and what we found out was um, it's pretty clear that, that, that Bezos was uh, pushing at that conference to close the deal so he could announce it while they were in the room. Oh, cool. Um, and I, I mean, when we talk about the fan campaign um, being the thing that resurrected it, Bezos is a fan. He, yeah. he, That's he, cool. He clearly knew and liked the show. I mean, he, he talked to the, uh, the actors at the, the conference there before the announcement and he knew which roles they were and he knew what they were. He, he, he watched it. I mean, he's, he's, he's sitting there watching it with the rest of us, um, wow. which, yeah, that's weird. I mean, I understand. Pizza money. <laughs> right. Yeah. Pizza money's going far. Oh, man. Was it, where, where? Pizza money. <laughs> like, how do you sleep at night knowing this, you know? Right. Uh, Jeff Bezos is, is watching. Yeah. Oh, golly. Hi. Uh, so, with speaking of that, speaking of, of Amazon and all that, where, where's anything anything changing in terms of uh, how you're approaching anything? Like you said, a lot of things you, you know are going to go on the way that they that they were. But any any reins being loosened, and especially in terms of language and stuff like that, that you're that you're enjoying? Oh well, yeah, no, absolutely. We I mean the whole uh, standards and practices are different now, yeah. um, and that's and also. Um, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I love the guys at Sci-Fi. Sci-Fi has, sure. did, did great by us. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't have a great reputation. Yeah. And being an Amazon uh, original actually opens up some, some crew and cast and directorial uh, options we, we, we never had. Um, with sci-fi and so great i'm i'm you know i don't know the detail i mean i can't speak to that but i know that uh it's it's a higher prestige uh platform for sure and, and that that yeah. well and even uh, coming back to to avasarala i mean letting letting loose her tongue is going to be pretty uh pretty thrilling i think I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, the other thing, I don't want to, I don't want it to have it just be Shore cursing right. 24 minutes an hour. It's that, that would be fun. Yes. But um, I, I want to, I don't want, I don't want it to feel like it's a different show. Right. I want it to hopefully, you know, feel like we're growing into a, uh, the space organically. Mm-hmm. Agreed. 
I'm hopeful that um, the episodes, if they need to be longer to finish telling whatever that episode's story is, that, that that breathing room will really be there. Yeah, Narayan has been talking about the, kind of the the, um, the options, that, the, the flexibility that you have when you're not tied to uh, yes. an exact out. Mm-hmm. The, 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 when it, you need an extra five minutes and you, you got an extra five minutes of footage, you can put it together and that's fine. They're not going to object to that. That's right. that's that's very nice. And, you know, as with all of this, we always knew that the show was going to be uh, streamed. We always knew that that was going to be kind of its natural space. Um, but there are constraints when you're trying to accommodate commercial breaks that we don't have those anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. There's, there's structurally some things that um, we, we've taken down some of the obstacles. Um, along the way and we'll, we'll see how that goes i mean that's the i assume that will help us out and we'll see how it plays out so how does your time play out now at this point you know obviously you're still writing books on the side so how do you split that up with your time on on the set like are you working on the books on the set or is that like really divided how does that work well it, it's uh we we uh improvise a lot um ty has has more experience on the set. So if there's something that needs to be done with the show, Ty is generally the one who takes point on that. Ty takes point on the show. And if it's something, you know, I have the spare cycles and I have the spare uh, time. So if there's uh, something that needs to be taken point on the books, I I tend to take point on the books. Um, But we're both involved in both halves of the project. We're We're both still, you know, we both have our fingers and everything. Sure. And so for Tiamat's Wrath, is that like, are you guys done with your side and it's the publisher or is that something still in progress for you guys? Um, we should be getting notes back from our editor, I think in a couple of weeks. Mm. Um, and, you know, the first draft is always the first draft. It needs a little, needs some two by fours put under it. <laughs> we'll put some two by fours under it and polish it up. Um, and yeah, and then that that actually got pushed weirdly that got pushed because uh not because the of the pressure of the show per se but because uh we uh had some some changes in personnel at the the publishing house okay uh, and we didn't and originally we were turning the book in on the day that uh the new editor was coming in and it just seemed rude <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> okay, you know so um, and that's releasing now in, in December. First week of December, is that right? No, it no it's March. Oh, it's it March. Oh, it was December. Now it's March. Okay. Yeah, I got pushed to March so that we could have enough time to really do the, the editing step and the polish step right. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Which we absolutely appreciate, especially since yeah. you know we're staring down the barrel of the end of the series. And so uh, we're okay with doing right. <laughs> no, it's this and then there's one more. Yeah, how does that feel for you at this point in the series? Like, are you, are you just ready or are you not putting your head up much? Or how does that feel to be so close to the end? Kind of exciting, actually. Because, I mean, we, we know what the ending is. We've known what the ending was mm-hmm. since 2012. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, wow. Maybe, maybe earlier than that. Yeah, earlier than that. Um, and so to have gone, I mean, and, and that was, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of words. It's a lot of story. And, yeah. and I, 
I can kind of see where it ends. And I really like endings. I really like mm. stories that, that come to the place they were going to go and then land it. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it's my preference. And I, I kind of want to see what this all looks like when it's done. You know, I kind of want to, and I want to be able to step back from it and, and uh, see the whole thing at once and see what the shape of it, see if it's the shape I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's going to be, that's going to be awesome. That's going to be fun. Yeah. It's going to be a really cool moment to, to sit back and go, we did that. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. Those 10 books, that's what we did. That's mm-hmm. all right. Yeah. So uh, the focus of the show certainly has been the expanse, but are you working on any other books or projects that you have upcoming? Well, yeah, actually. Um, I, my, my, my side gig has always been writing epic fantasy as Daniel Abraham. And I've, I've got a, a contract for another trilogy that I'm working on right now. All oh, wow. um, Orbit. Um, and Ty and I have a, a space opera, a James S.A. Corey space opera that'll be our next project once we're done with The Expanse. Oh, wow. Excellent. Great. Can you can you say anything about that one at all, or is it just uh, it's it's too too far away to tell? Uh, I I can say that we know what it is, and uh, we've talked through a bunch of the the again the world building and the the shape of it, and it's it's going to be a very different kind of epic, and it's going to be it's going to be fun. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, I think we can say that James S.A. Corey Brand means fun and awesome or just part of the package. <laughs> so, you know, it's always, it's, it's always interesting to see uh, what happens when you finish your signature project. I mean, that, that there's mm-hmm. that, the, that part where you discover whether there are Expanse fans or James S.A. Corey fans. Oh, good point. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It doesn't, I mean... We're gonna turn out the the coolest, most interesting, fun project uh, we can, regardless. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, it'll be it's always we're gambling. <laughs> being a writer is being a gambler. It'll be fun. Anything? Uh, anything else you wanna you wanna share? Anything else going on? Or um, where else can we find you on on social media? Uh, well, Ty and I are uh, we have we have Twitter accounts. Uh, he runs the James S A Corey. Uh, account when and if he is ever on Twitter these days, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm he's it's kind of busy. Um, and I'm uh, at Abraham Hanover, um, so you can find me there. Again, depending on whether I'm on Twitter that week or not. Uh, we have a website uh, that's there's the uh, www.jamessacory.com. You can find some stuff there that's uh, done through our our publisher and uh, that's I think that's the those are the best places to track us down. Alrighty. Excellent. Well it has been fantastic to have you. It's been it's been a great chat. I I really, really was excited to 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 get to talk to you and happy that we made it work out. I'm glad it worked out. Uh, hiccups and all but uh <laughs> Yeah. You know, audio and technology being what it is, I think it I think it's also appropriate thematically for, you know, what we've been talking about. So yeah, this is this has been so much fun. I'm going to be um, um, doing the the victory walk among my geeky friends that I got to hang out with Daniel Abraham for an evening. So thanks for that. Well, tell them hi for me. Absolutely. Excellent.
Well, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Uh, thanks for speaking with us. And uh, we will, uh, we'll talk to you later. Sounds good. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.